Thank you, Jonathan. You may be seated this morning. So, good morning. I know you are awake, or at least some of you. Um, real quick observation. Uh, did not know this group here could sing so well, so I'm going to need to hear that every week. That was great. Seriously. Most of the time I'm like, they're not even singing. Today they were. This was great. Um, so, um, we're going to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There should be a Bible close to you. If you don't have one, you can get your listening guide out if you still bring that with you, your device. I'm not offended if you're reading it on your phone or your iPad or whatever. Um, just We're going to read the whole of chapter 8. It's about 13 verses. Um, but I just do want to say thank you all for being here, uh, especially if you were here last week and you're above the age of 60, thanks for being back. I appreciate it. And if you don't know what that means, you have to go back and watch last week's sermon, and then you'll know. If you're watching online, thank you for that too. So, we're going to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would read along with me. Says now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so this study through 1 Corinthians has had lots of ups and downs and all arounds, and it's talked about a lot of quote-unquote big topics. We've talked about marriage, the meaning of it. We've talked about sexuality in all of its forms, sinful and non-sinful. We've talked about divorce and when that's allowed and when that's not. We've talked about singleness last week. We've talked about a lot of kind of major cultural and relational issues. All of them had to address how we interact with one another. This week, we see Paul shift gears to something that's seemingly, on its surface, non-relational, and yet, the whole crux of the matter is relational. That's the whole point. Of, it's not about the food, but we'll get there. See, we've, 
broadly named this sermon today, The Gospel and Freedom, and we will get to exactly why we chose that title. But we, we will look at this issue of food offered to idols specifically, but we will also, as we always do, take the wisdom of God's Word and apply it to our, our time here, our culture here in America, our culture abroad, all of those things. It's not just about that, but it's not not about that. Okay, so we're going to do kind of a both and here today. So let's look at the context that Paul is speaking into. This was not as severe a shift of gears as it looks like. It, does, it looks like if you just kind of read through it and the headings aren't there and you're just reading a letter from Paul, it's talking about sexual temptation and intimacy and marriage and divorce and all of these things, and then all of a sudden it's like squirrel and food, right? It's like this ADD moment that seemingly Paul is like, changing gears, and it's actually not that, that big of a shift. Remember that we have mentioned before, this is not 1 Corinthians. It's the first one we have, but there are other letters, at least one, that, has been, that have been transferred between Paul and this church. Now, there's some people here that are like, what are letters? You mean text messages? And it's like, no, not quite. So you have to squeeze a bunch of information in. You ever got that text from somebody? It's like, dude, slow down. You asked me 37 questions on one text. I don't know how to answer that. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. They've asked a ton of questions, and because it takes a long time to go back and forth with letters, Paul is trying to answer them all in one letter. So he's got to shift gears at times, sometimes from what seemingly unrelated issues to other issues. So... The point is, is that because of this access, Paul will start things by saying, now concerning, or now about, or something like that. He does this about ten times in, in 1 Corinthians alone. He'll just start a sentence with, now concerning, fill in the blank, and it's the issue they've already asked about. So they've written him and said, well, what about this, what about this, what about this? Now concerning that. So today is now concerning food offered to idols. Now, if you remember far back enough, we, we kind of introed this whole sermon series talking about the place of Corinth as a whole. This church at Corinth started in a very debaucherous place. There was all kinds of crazy worship practices going on. We won't have time to go into that. If you really want to know, go back and listen to that sermon. But it's all kinds of worship, all kinds of, of debaucherous living, all kinds of cultural living that everything is okay, basically. You do whatever you want. Sounds quite a bit like America nowadays, but it's anything goes, and one of the things they would do for worship would be to sacrifice to their idols meat or animals. This is not a practice that we are unfamiliar with as Christians. The Old Testament is full of this with our God doing it the right way, but this is what they would do to offer to their idols, to their gods. They would offer to, to get blessing for them the harvest, to get blessing for um, having babies, for all of these different things, they would kind of offer different sacrifices to different gods. So this is in the midst of this environment, God began saving people to believing in him, to changing their methods to the way of Yahweh, to changing their methods to following after Jesus. And so in the midst of this environment, people are getting saved. What do we do? They form a church. They plant a church. This is what should happen Everywhere on the planet, even today, if a bunch of believers start getting saved in an area, they should plan a church. They should try to find a pastor that's qualified. They should do all of the things that this church did. But they did this in that place. They, it's not like they picked up and moved 
out of the city or moved away from all of this cultural phenomenon, all of this idol worship, all of this craziness, they stayed right there. And because of that, they began looking very different than everybody else that was there. They began living in stark contrast to the culture, and it caused lots of questions to them and from them. They, they're, remember, they're brand new in their faith, so it's, it's as if they're like, I don't know. I just believe in this Jesus guy. Like, I, what do you do about this? I, I really don't know. So they, who do they ask? Paul's the go-to guy. So they ask Paul about this issue because there was a faction in the church that was saying, look, we're free in Christ. You do whatever you want. And, and by whatever you want, some people were saying literally whatever you want. Everything was free. We've talked about that in weeks past. But in this particular case, they're saying, look, after all, we're free in Christ eat whatever you want. It literally doesn't matter. And then there was another faction of the church that was saying, hold on now. If it's, if, if it's offered to an idol, aren't we sinning by taking that into our bodies? Shouldn't we live completely differently than the culture? Shouldn't we look completely different from the culture in all of these ways we've discussed and in this one? So again, they, they asked Paul. Now Paul could have answered this question by simply saying, when they said, I, I don't know how they phrased it, we don't have that letter, but if they said, hey Paul, can we offer, or can we eat food offered to idols? He could have literally just been, now concerning food offered to idols, nope, and moved on. Don't eat it. Because if you read ahead in chapter 10, that's basically what he does say. He basically just kind of, in, it's like, in case you're not picking up what I'm saying, don't do it. If you know it's offered idols, don't do it. There is a gray area of if you don't know and all of, all of those things. But in chapter 10, Paul gets pretty clear. Just don't eat it. If it's offered idols, it's off limits to you as a Christian. But in this particular case, Paul answers it a bit differently. He answers it in an interesting way, and because of that interesting way, this is how we can extrapolate the wisdom of this text to other areas of our life as well. We will get there in just a moment. However, I do want to address the specifics of this issue. I think it would be, not would be, I think it is arrogant of us many times as American Christians. I fall into this category. I'm not casting judgment. I fall into this category to read certain parts of Scripture and be like, yeah, but that doesn't really apply to me. And it's not me. It's like that doesn't really apply to our context. And here in America, in essence, it doesn't. Okay, Very, very rarely are you going to have to ask somebody, hey, did you offer this to idols before you cooked it? Because I, I have had my Muslim neighbor ask me that, so apparently they have the same rule. But I was like, uh, no, I, I don't think. He was like, well, who, who killed it? How do you know they didn't? And I was like, I don't think Walmart does that, man. Like, I, I, think, I think we're good. Uh, but he was very concerned. He, he ate it, by the way. It was a hamburger. No big deal. No pork. Uh, but this exact scenario has happened to a family that sits here every week. Just a few years ago in India, they were at an event. I think a wedding is what they told me. And they offered some food to idols, and they brought it around to every guest to give it to them. And they had to make a moment-by-moment moment decision of, like, what do we do? We know what just happened. It wasn't the gray area of we don't know. It was we know what just happened. What do we do? So it, to say, because we're American Christians, well, this will never come up, well, that means you haven't traveled or you, or you haven't gone on mission. And... It could start happening here. I don't know what the future holds in America. But to say this doesn't apply to us at all would be arrogant for us to say because, again, it has happened to people in our midst. 
Now, this is a broader wisdom from this text. So it's not just don't eat meat. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. But our first bit of wisdom from this text, it says just because God saves us does not mean we are to completely separate ourselves from the predominant culture around us. You notice I said that the family that's here, it's the Vanderpools in case anybody cares, it's the Vanderpools that are sitting right here. So they could have not gone to the wedding and they wouldn't have ran into that issue. Okay? But they wouldn't have been around non-Christians that they knew needed to hear the gospel. So to separate from culture means you're not going to be doing the Great Commission. You're not going to be sharing the gospel. If a missionary were to go to a foreign country and then just hang out with the Christians that are already there and never branch out to the non-Christians, we are wasting our money on that person. We should not send them as a missionary. They're a social event planner or something else. We can't live in little Christian bubbles. This doesn't mean we do what the culture does, but we have to be in and amongst them. And the people of Corinth were obviously still involved in the lives around them or they wouldn't have been asking this question. They wouldn't have had to worry about it because they could just cook their own meat, cook their own food, and never offer it to idols and then just eat it and not have to worry about it. But God did not call them to take them out of the environment. He called them so that they could be salt and light in that environment. And that's what he has called us to do as well. This gives us and the, gave them and gives us the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission and 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If we as Christians only surround ourselves with other Christians who are also trying to live a godly life, this question doesn't come up. They don't ask, why are you living that way? Because in, in theory, they should be trying to live the exact same way. They would have no questions. We have to be living among people that are going to go, y'all are kind of strange. Like, y'all are a little bit weird. Why do you do that? And then we offer the reasoning because we love Jesus. Don't just go because I'm kind of weird. Then that defeats the purpose as well. Some of y'all are quite weird, but we won't go into that thing. So, and I'm not going to put an age on that. Like, some of y'all are just weird, period. Okay. We cannot surround ourselves with just Christians. We are called to the culture to share what Jesus has done in our lives and what he can do in the lives of others. This is not just a dated issue that only people during biblical times need to hear. This is a message we all need to hear. We live in stark contrast to the culture, but we live in the culture nonetheless. Now, if you live in the culture and you don't stand out, that's a problem on the other side. Then you're not really living for Jesus, apparently, or they would have these questions. But like I said, Paul answers this in an interesting way. So we start by seeing where they are, where the people of Corinth still are, where they're still hanging out, who they're still hanging out with, the reason this question came up. But now let's get to what, what does Paul say. He starts by saying that all of us possess knowledge. However, if you notice in your text, if you read along with me, there are quotations around all of us possess knowledge. Now, in the original language, just bear with me, there's, there's no quotations. There's no such thing as quotations in the original Greek. But you can see by the way it is written by Paul that he is quoting people in the church. He is quoting them by saying, well, they say... All of us possess knowledge. We all know what to do. Why are you asking me? Everybody's got knowledge. Why should I have to answer this? He's saying we all have knowledge, so everybody knows something. 
but it, it's well, not going to that. But it somewhat reminds me of a lot of TV preachers. We're all good. Ninety-nine point nine percent of people have a good heart. We all know what to do, right and wrong. Apparently not is my answer to that. And Paul is saying the exact same thing. Apparently, not everybody possesses knowledge. A, we wouldn't have people doing what they were doing in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Okay? And B, you wouldn't have to ask me all of these questions if everybody had the same knowledge and everybody had this all figured out. But, basically, for argument's sake, he just agrees. In the next sentence, he says, for the sake of argument to their premise, he says, this knowledge that everybody has... Again, notice the quotations. Paul is saying here, sure, okay, fine. Everybody has knowledge. I'll give it to you. It's not true, but I'll give it to you. Everybody has knowledge, but most of the things we know, we simply use as weapons to win an argument. We simply use as, as weapons to bludgeon our opponents into agreeing with us or to bludgeon them into making ourselves feel good. How do we know this? Because the next sentence says, this knowledge, quotations again, puffs up our ego and our pride. It puffs us up. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel smart. It makes us feel holy. Oh, well, I, I know something that they don't know, and I can win this argument. Watch me win this argument. Watch you win an argument and lose a soul. It's not about winning arguments. And he says right there, what does the opposite? Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Ego puffs up. Pride puffs up. Look, look at how holy I am. Look at how awesome I am. Love builds up other people. We can either use our knowledge to build ourselves up, or we can use our love to build others up at our own expense. It's not the greatest feeling in the world to lose an argument when you know you could win it. But for the sake of someone else, what, what good is it to simply win an argument just because you know more than them? Or just because you think you know more than them? You may not. But what good is it to basically turn someone away just so you can walk away going, won that one. I've been in this situation numerous times. I've handled it well sometimes. I've not handled it well other times. This is the reason I don't have Facebook, I will tell you that, because so, I can't stop typing, oh, I'm going to win this argument. By the way, never once has a Facebook argument ended with a winner and a loser. It's never happened. And again, that's why I'm not on it. But this is, this is what knowledge will do, or the, the illusion of knowledge will do. So we can willingly sacrifice our own intellects. That doesn't mean make yourself stupid. We can willingly sacrifice our own wisdom. That doesn't mean don't know stuff. We can willingly sacrifice our own ability to win an argument in order to show love to other people. Anyone, he says, anyone who thinks they know something really doesn't know anything. They're not humble enough to admit, I've really got some more learning to do. I've really got some more information to gather. I've got to get more wisdom Anyone who thinks he really knows something is not humble enough to really know that he knows nothing. It is only humility that leads us to the knowledge that matters. And what does Paul say that is? Knowing God and him knowing us. Knowing God, loving God, being known by God, and being loved by God. This is knowledge. This is true wisdom, according to Paul. This is what we need to know. We need to know God in a relational way, not just facts about him. So instead of simply answering the question... He first and foremost breaks down the pride of those even in the argument. Basically saying, y'all are basically arguing about the wrong thing. I'll get to the answer later, and he does. And he kind of does today, very clearly does in chapter 10. But he's basically, first of all, breaking down their pride. Like, y'all are arguing about the wrong thing. Y'all are missing the point altogether anyway. 
So Paul uses these quotes again in the next section. He's clearly quoting the arguments made by the side of the people wanting to eat the meat, wanting to say, we're free in Christ, we're allowed. And he's, he's, they're saying, these idols aren't even real. They're made out of wood. They're offering sacrifices to, to fake things, to non-alive things, to inanimate objects. What does it matter if they did that first? If it's good to eat, we should be able to eat it. And I can almost hear them quoting, if they had it, and had the information, Matthew 15, where Jesus says, it is not what goes into the body that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth, which is 100% true. I'm not here to argue with Jesus. Okay, That is true. However, what was the context in which Jesus was speaking? He was simply talking about eating. Not food offered to idols, not all this, just eating in general. Because people were saying, well, we've got to do all of these things to get good graces from God. We've got to earn our favor. We've got to do all these things. And, and Jesus is like, look, your favor comes from your faith in me and it's not what you eat that makes you evil or not and he paul kind of says this as well but i wholeheartedly agree with jesus and i wholeheartedly agree with paul here jesus is saying it's not what you eat that doesn't commend you with god that doesn't score you brownie points that doesn't do any of those things and paul says the same thing however in this context it is different when someone says look they're not real their idols aren't real they're not they're just pieces of wood why can't we eat them it's it's almost like they're saying Things that you can't argue with. These are called straw men arguments, right? They're, they're saying, say the Lord is one, God is one. They, these things are fake. So it looks like if you come to them and say, yes, but we still shouldn't eat the meat that's offered to them because of the way in which it was offered, it looks like you're arguing with the God is one and that idols are real. So they're, they're taking these arguments and jamming them together so that Paul, if he comes against it, it looks like he's saying, no, 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 you're, no. Of course idols are real. Of course God isn't one. And Paul's like, no, no, I agree with all that. Idols are fake. God is one. We worship Yahweh. We worship God. And because of that, maybe we shouldn't eat. So in regards to this freedom, Paul brings up a good point in verse 7. He basically is saying, regardless of what I think, if, if, if some of your brothers and sisters in Christ who used to participate in idol worship, they used to eat this meat because they really thought it would do something. They really thought the idols were real. They really thought they were real gods. Now they've come to wisdom and knowing that God is the only God, but they're still new to this. So then they look at you eating the meat in the temple. They're eating the meat that they used to use as worship, and it looks like you're saying, yeah, you can worship God and this idol. You just kind of just kind of add them together. It's fine to worship God, but it's also fine to worship this idol because the thing that you used to do to worship this idol, I'm now doing. So it looks as if you are telling them it's okay. And this is obviously not okay. The Bible is quite clear that God and God alone is to be worshipped. The Bible is quite clear that God is one. And the Bible is quite clear that he will share his glory with no one else. So he's, he's not okay with worship of him and something else, or and someone else, or and anything else. But that's what it looks like. It looks like you're saying, it's okay to kind of, it's called syncretism. It's just adding these two religions together. You see it in foreign countries all the time. They come to know Jesus, but they, it's just so hard to let go of the old lifestyle. Well, if it's so hard to let go of the old lifestyle, and then they see you participating in what they would call their old lifestyle, it looks like they're just allowed to kind of do both. Ride the fence. Do whatever they want to do. And Paul is saying, 
that's not good. You're going to lead them astray. This reminds me of, I hate to use this as an example when the whole crowd is these guys, but the, like the f- third resident we had in program living seven years ago, just comes walking, he comes walking proudly through the house wearing a Jack Daniels shirt. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you wearing that? And his response, I wasn't an alcoholic. I'm like, that guy was. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, what you might, who knows what that might trigger in him to see that, if that was his drink of choice, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But I was like, yeah, you're going to go ahead and take that off, regardless of it's wrong for you. Because was it wrong for him? Eh, maybe, maybe a gray area since he never showed with alcoholism. But the people around him had. And that's the point is looking out for your brothers and sisters. You see, someone with a weaker faith can be tricked and triggered by anything. You never know what might trigger someone that's new in their faith to, and I I use this term loosely, relapse into their old faith, whatever that may have been, in their old way of living, whatever that may have been. Galatians 6 calls us, who are more mature in our faith, to help and bear with the weaknesses of the weak, the failures of the weak, the failings of the weak. So just because we are past an issue... Or just because we never struggled. I never worshipped an idol. I never ate this meat before. Why can't I eat it now? Okay, maybe you quote unquote can. But other people can't. And therefore, lovingly, knowledge puffs up. That's, That's the knowledge, right? The knowledge that it doesn't really matter. In essence, it doesn't. Idols are fake. That knowledge puffs you up to say, I can do whatever I want. Doesn't matter what everybody thinks. Love builds up the other person by saying, you know what, I'll give up the right to do it, even if I can. So sure, technically you have the right to eat it, but what is more important, your rights or the soul of someone you love? What's really important here? What's more important, the soul of someone watching you or your right to eat meat? Because you can't get it anywhere else. Because you probably could. I don't know that for a fact. But what if you're eating causes someone to have a false belief? Or what if your eating causes a brother or sister to stumble and sin? Or what if your eating causes someone to turn away from the faith or to ask questions that they can't answer and they just say, you know what, forget it. I'll just go keep living life that I was living. Now, we believe in perseverance of the saints. If someone is truly saved, they are saved. All of that. But why make it harder for them? Why make them have to wrestle through this just for your rights to do something. And then Paul says at the end here that if his eating were to be a stumbling block to anyone, he would never eat meat. End of sentence. Paul takes it in even a step further. This isn't a vegetarian text. We're not allowed to eat meat anytime, anywhere. I would not like that at all if that was the case. Paul is not saying that. He is specifically talking about meat or food, any kind of food, really, but it was typically meat, offered to idols. But he is saying, if it causes my brothers to stumble, I'll just swear off the whole food group. I just won't have protein. Okay? All the bros in the house are like, uh, we got to have protein. Right. But we got, yeah, I heard you giggle. All right. He's saying, though, I won't eat meat of any kind. That's how far I will give up my rights. That is how far I'm willing to go to show love to those around me. And this is where we can extrapolate more wisdom from this text today. So one, no, you should not eat meat or any food offered to idols, ever, if you know 
If you know that's what it was used for at any point, your answer is, no, I will not ingest that. Not because the ingesting poisons you or you're going to get food poisoned. God didn't bless that food. That's not it, okay? Yeah, you probably will be fine, more than likely. But it's, it's you are sacrificing the right to eat that because of the motive in which it was prepared, basically. Or the reason it was prepared was for this idol, and you know that, so you abstain. That's the clear-cut answer. It'll probably be rehashed a little bit when we do get chapter 10, but that's, that's it. No. Okay? Two, more pertinent maybe to our context. We as Christians must be willing to give up our rights for the greater good and for the love of brothers and sisters. Whatever those rights are, it literally does not matter what they are. If you have the right to do it and it causes someone else to stumble... You should abstain from that. Rights and freedoms that we absolutely and unequivocally have should be willingly laid down if it is more loving to someone to do so. Remember, pride puffs up, love builds up. The easiest example of this is alcohol. There's tons of other examples we could use. It's just the easiest one to understand is alcohol. I, as your pastor, I will clearly state this. I have the right to drink alcohol. Now, I do not have the right to get drunk because that is a sin. That is wrong. I should never get drunk ever, ever, ever. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. But if I want to have a beer, I am allowed to do so. You are allowed to do so unless you're in program living and you're drug tested twice a week. But besides that, besides that, you are allowed to do so if you do not get drunk. However, I don't do it. For multiple reasons, but one of which is if someone around town sees Pastor Justin drinking a beer, they don't know that I only have one, and they may look at it and go, well, clearly we can do this, and they have 14 or 20 or whatever it is, okay? More than one. It can cause a fellow believer, if they're fresh in their faith and they don't understand and they don't come ask me how many I've had or why I'm drinking it or any of that stuff, I, Pastor Eric has never once told me don't drink alcohol around town. That's my rule. If I'm around town where I might run into people that I know or that will see me doing this, I don't do it. For that reason, it is my right to drink a beer if I want to. It is my right to drink something if I want to. But if it triggers someone to sin or to even stumble into temptation to sin, I should abstain from doing so for that very reason. This is why we use grape juice here at Mission Church. We've always used grape juice. We have no qualms with it being real wine. As a matter of fact, I think that would be quote-unquote more biblical if it were real wine because that's what they were using back then. But we don't because we've always had or we've always wanted to have people that were struggling, people that were, were struggling with temptation, struggling with sin. We want them to feel welcome here, and that doesn't throw out the welcome mat. Hey, we know you're struggling with this, but yeah, just, a, just a little taste of wine won't hurt you. It might. So we just abstain. We take away that right even from our church. So then, why is this sermon entitled The Gospel and Freedom? It sounds like it's called The Gospel and Giving Away Freedoms, or The Gospel and Bondage, or The Gospel and Whatever. 
Because I'm telling you, and, and I am telling you, you have to give up rights in order for the betterment of others, for loving others, so that others won't be tempted to sin or tempted to leave the faith or tempted to do any of these things. So Jesus even says that anyone that causes a child to sin, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. I cannot imagine why he would say that about biological children and not also apply it to children in the faith. Spiritual children. You can be a spiritual child at any age of your life if you have just come to faith. So why would that not be wisdom for us to not cause that person to stumble and sin into temptation either? We are called to a higher calling as Christians. And the reason I'm willing to call this giving up of rights freedom is because it frees us from the bondage to ourselves. This is all of us in here. We, we want what we want, whatever that may be, but we want to live for ourselves. This is, our, this is everyone's temptation at all times, even after you've been saved. That's the temptation that's, that keeps drawing you away or trying to draw you away from following after Jesus. Is you want what you want, and you can't, or you, or you shouldn't, or whatever. However, this frees us, this turning over to Jesus, this frees us from that bondage. This frees us from having to be right all the time. This frees us from having to win arguments all the time or prove people wrong all the time. It frees us from the pride that cripples us, that puffs up, especially here in America where it's all about our rights and freedoms. That's my right. So I can do whatever I want, this, that, the other, whatever it is. And the Bible is calling us to stay here in America where everyone preaches that. You have the right to do whatever you want and live in that culture and not partake in all of the rights that you have in order to follow after Jesus. Romans 15, 1-3, I think I have that on a slide, I believe. It tells us this as Christians. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. You see how those two things are obviously opposites to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. What this is saying is a lot of times, a lot of times, that's not going to overlap. Sometimes you cannot please yourself and you're bearing with the failings of the weak, but a lot of times those are mutually exclusive things. And then it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached, reproached you fell on me. This clearly tells us that doing this for our brothers and sisters in a small way is making us more like Jesus. It is sanctifying us in a way of sloughing off this sinful desire of pride, this sinful desire to be right all the time. It is causing us to live more like Jesus. And we are obligated to do so. And because of this, we can follow his example that he sets in Philippians 2, 6-11, also on the screen. It says, In Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So giving up these rights, whatever those rights may be, 
whether it's eating food offered to idols, whether it's the alcohol example, or whether it's anything else that you absolutely have the right to do in Christ, whether whatever those are, giving up those rights for the sake of others is following the example of Jesus. But Jesus is far more than simply an example to live by. He is far more than simply a good guy who did some good things, so we should try to be more like him because he's a good guy. He is far more than an example to be followed. And Paul answers the ultimate question in verse 6 of today's text. If you have your Bible still open, you can read it. But look at verse 6. All of this is being said. And he says, Yet for us, Christians, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is why we exercise our freedom to give up our rights. It is for the worship of Christ. He is worth it. He is God. All of this, everything we do here today, everything we do tomorrow, every day, all of creation is about him. It is for him. It is through him. And yet, Jesus humbled himself so far that he ultimately died on a cross for us in order to reconcile us back to the God that we were turning against and turning against and turning against and not even asking to be saved by. And yet, Jesus comes along and says, follow after me. Not my example. Yes, that's included. But don't follow just my example. Follow after me as Lord, as Savior, because he is all things. All things are for him. He is worthy, and he is worth it. You are never going to get to the gates of heaven and be like, this is pretty awesome, but man, I could have drank a few more beers. But man, I could have eaten that meat offered to idols. But man, I could have done this or done that. You are not going to have that regret when you are standing face to face with the risen Savior right in front of you. And he's saying, worship me for all eternity. And we will gladly, if we are in Christ, we will gladly say all of that, whatever it was that we gave up, all of that is worth it to see you face to face, to be ushered into your kingdom because I do not deserve it. You are my only plea. You are my only way in. Thank you, Jesus. I will, I will do it again a million times over to give up those rights for you. He is worth it. Let's pray.